Good morning. Okay, welcome to this workshop. My name is Katie. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this session. Hi, Everybody, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The topic for this session is newcomers. We have three speakers, and our first speaker is Rebecca. Oh, and can I get someone to be a timekeeper? Hi, I'm, I'm Rebecca. I'm a food addict. Hi, Rebecca. And I'm glad to see you here, all three of you. Um, I'm just going to qualify for um, how long I've been in the program. I, I started the program um, the end of 97, and I had... Um, a one-bite slip on Thanksgiving in 98, so I have a recommitted abstinence from November 27, 1998, and I'm maintaining an 80-pound weight loss for um, a little over seven years. Um, As you will see in those pictures, probably as a little girl, I was not overweight, but I think I've been overweight in my head all of my life. And certainly, um, as a prepubescent teen, I was definitely putting on weight and it was showing. But there's a picture there again when I was 13 and I wasn't nearly as fat as my memory and my thought of how how I felt about myself. And um, so I've been um, a compulsive overeater basically all of my life and and struggled with my weight until I walked into this program. I never stayed, stayed the same size for more than about 30 seconds and my pants size changed probably every week and a half or two. I was either going up or going down, um, being miserable, hating myself, um, intermittently trying to convince myself that I wasn't unhappy, um, getting on a diet and feeling, oh, great, this is a wonderful thing. I'm never going to go back to eating all that junk food or whatever it was. And um, I think with those diets, the first time I wasn't absolutely perfect, then it was all over. And I think it was a way of beating myself up. And um, I did that for a long, long, long time. And I could lose 50 pounds. It wasn't difficult. Um, And then the second that I went off the program, I would gain 50 back plus more um, in a very short amount of time. So it was uh, just that struggle that we all have. I think that story for most of us is often quite the same. I was... um, There's a saying that it takes a village to raise a child, and I was one of those children that was raised by a village, and I really had a wonderful village. So um, I was surrounded by really women that just loved me. There was no doubt in my mind that I was loved, so I can't say that I was not loved and so therefore I ate. Um, But it was really only probably in the last decade that I really realized that I ate my feelings down, and that's where it came from. And I always thought I just liked food more than the next person. It's just the way it is. I I like food. And I didn't have any idea that it was an addiction. Um, I, uh, my mother was married three times, and I don't know my biological father. My second father was my mother's second husband. I'm very flexible. I'll take them all. Um, (laughs) My mother's second husband, or my second father, um, was an African-American man in the East Coast in the 50s. And so um, it was difficult. And her parents 
her father and her stepmother would never, ever, ever have accepted that. And he had the political clout and the um, money to have us taken away from her, which was the big threat that we were going to get taken away if they ever found out that she was married to this fellow. And that family, um, in the picture, you'll see my grandmother and my mother, my, my African-American grandmother, uh, and my mother and myself and my, little brother, my older brother as we were kids. They were a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful blessing in my life. And so the marriage only lasted about two years. And then you just can't live in secrets like that. They didn't live together during the week. We lived, when we went to my grandmother's house, we would stay together as a family. Um, in the summers, we could stay there as a family. But other than that, the lives were totally separate. And I think as a little girl, it was extremely hard when my mother's relatives would call and say, what have you done for the weekend? And we were there, and we couldn't say we were there. And, you know, it was just a lot. And I think that's another thing I just didn't realize, what, what pressure that was as a little kid when you adore these people, but you can't talk about them. Um, and then my mother remarried, and um, <clears throat> we moved out to, this, to, this, um, to California from Pennsylvania, and I was about 10. And I think the weight really started coming on about that time. Um, and I just remember feeling horrible, just horrible and fat and not like the other kids. And um, at some point before my mother's second marriage, she had to go somewhere, and she left my brother and me with my grandparents, not this grandmother, but her father and stepmother. And again, I didn't feel unloved. But my mother and, and her father had a very contentious relationship. So I'm sure that as she dropped us off, she told us all to be, my brother and me to be very, very good. And so at the age of four, I took that into my head that I had to be very, very good or what. So when I asked my mother how long I was there, she said, oh, I don't know, three or four months. I asked my grandmother how long I was there. This is not too long ago. And she said, I don't know, six or nine months. So for a four-year-old, when five minutes is a long time, I was there a long time being very, very good. And they had totally white carpets, if that gives you an idea. They were not children-oriented people. Um, but again, I, I felt loved. It's just that there's that sense of abandonment. Um, so <clears throat> in the, uh, I grew up as a teenager. I think started Weight Watchers somewhere about the time I was 19 or 20. At that time, it was $2 a visit. And um, when I finally left, I was on and off there, but when I finally left, meetings were $11 a visit. So, you know, I had a fair history there. I could pay their rent for a long time. And I did well, and I thought it was really a very sensible program, which is when I didn't do the Jenny Craig thing, and I didn't do the well, whatever that is, other W one was that I can't remember. But I really did um, think Weight Watchers was the way to go because it's so practical. You can eat real food. But I got so tired of getting on the scale and having her go, you know, and I'm saying, I'm so sorry, I had a bad week. Paying them $11 to apologize to these people. And I got very phobic about, about being weighed. Very, very phobic about being weighed. Um, so I got married at a very young age. I was 20. Uh, it was a, I talked myself into thinking it was a good marriage. It was not. He left when I was 25, and um, I sort of knew at that time, as painful it was, as it was and as resentful as I was, that I would be really better off now that I didn't have him, and the marriage was ended. And um, I hooked up with a group called Newly Alone, 
which I kind of kicked my feet about because it was sponsored by the Catholic Church. And I'm just not religious at all. I am not religious. I, I'm a labor and delivery nurse, so I feel that there really is a spirit in this world. But it really didn't connect to me. But when you're in the presence of birth, I couldn't deny it. Um, and I could often feel it in the room, but it wasn't connected to me. I certainly, I just don't have any belief in our, our Father who art in heaven. Um, so I went to that series of For Newly Alone, and it really helped me a lot. And then people would talk, talk about this retreat that you should, that it followed this Newly Alone thing when you've been divorced for about a year to help you kind of move on with your life. And something happened with my ex-husband that just made me so, so angry. This is two years after the divorce, and I'm thinking, I'm never going to get over this man, ever. And he had done something that really, really upset me, and I felt I was back at step one. Can I look at the water, please? Um, thanks. So I felt like I was really back at the very beginning with this guy. I was never going to get over the anger. And so... Um, I met somebody at the, at the farmer's market who I had sent to the Newly Alone program. And she said, you know, she said, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just really, really angry. And, and she said, um, well, you should do this retreat. Are you going to go do this retreat? And I said, I can't do it. It's Catholic. I mean, I don't, I don't. I said, you know, you're, you're Catholic, so you can get something out of it. I don't want to do, the, I mean, a retreat center, a Catholic retreat center? How could I do that? So I saw her again two weeks later, and she said, so are you going up for the retreat? And I said, no, I don't want to go to that. You don't understand. I feel it's not my thing, even though the Newly Alone series was fine. <clears throat> so I thought about it a bit, and I thought, you know, I went to the Newly Alone series, and it, I got great benefit out of that, and maybe it's time to work on myself, and I'll just bite the bullet and go to this damn Catholic thing. I'm bound to get something out of it. So I went off to this retreat, and the very first night we talked about um, anger. And if all I got out of this whole retreat was the peace I got with talking about the anger, that would have been worth the price. And what I got out of that was I was extremely angry at my ex-husband. However, the slight was that he had done was towards my daughter. It wasn't towards me, and it was for them to work out. It was no longer my problem. And yes, I can feel protective, but I didn't have to be involved. And so that helped immensely. Well, the next day we talked about guilt. And um, I had the situation where I lived in a household. My ex-husband was actually quite abusive to my middle child, and I didn't see it as abuse. Um, he was very verbally and psychologically abusive. And for some reason, if I looked in your window and seen it happening to you, I would have said, my God, this is really abusive. I couldn't see in my own window. And at some point um, before this retreat, many years before the retreat, four or five years before the retreat, I was standing in my kitchen. Nobody else was at home. And there was just this ray of sunshine that I was standing in. And I got these words saying, you're living in a house with abuse. You're allowing your ex-husband to abuse your child. And I felt like I was going to throw up on the floor. I was so, so stricken with the guilt. Because I recognized that I'm intelligent. I'm a healthcare professional. I didn't grow up in a situation like that. And yet I was 
living in the mode of you have to stay united with your partner. You have to present a united front. And I was, so I was allowing this to go on. And anyhow, when he came home that night, um, my daughter was on the phone and he did his usual thing, was say, get off the phone. First thing he said, no reason for her to get off the phone, just that he didn't want her on the phone. And she's saying to her son, you know, my dad's home, I'm going to have to go. And he says, get off the phone, and grabs her with that kind of abuse that he used to do. And I said, um, take your hands off of her. Don't ever touch her again. And he looked at me, and I thought, he's going to leave me one of these days. Because I was no longer controllable in that respect. And he didn't let go, and I said, I am absolutely serious. Take your hands off and do not touch her again. So for the next four years, five years, whatever it was, I had this guilt in me that I thought would kill me, that I had allowed this to go on for 15 years in my house. I talked to my kids about it. I offered to go to counseling with them about it. I talked to whatever damn spirit was out there, but they weren't listening to me. I talked to my childbirth education class. It's not about that situation, but the fact that if we don't protect our children, nobody else will. So it's up to us to do it. Um, and it wouldn't go away. And the guilt was really, really overwhelming. If I went to my therapist, I couldn't talk. I only cried. I couldn't get the words out. Um, it was very bad. Anyway, at this retreat, when we talked about guilt, again, I couldn't talk because I was too busy crying. Um, they, most people had guilt, Catholic sorts of guilt about, I've left my spouse. You know, God will not forgive me. A divorce is not okay. And the guilt I found coming out was the guilt of staying in that relationship so long and not seeing what was going on. But again, I couldn't talk about it. So we wrote, you know, our guilt thing on this little piece of paper. We went into the chapel, and we were going to let it go up in smoke. And the priest came, and he talked about guilt, and that for a while it serves a purpose in our lives. But then, why do we keep dragging it around? It's like having a, boulder, a bag of boulders on your back and climbing a cliff. So what purpose does it serve for us? Why are we keeping it? And I was so pissed off because I've been trying to get rid of it. It wasn't that I wanted to carry that guilt, which is what he was implying. You know, I was furious at this man. And then at the end, there was sort of a reconciliation thing where people, three people would kneel in the front of this chapel. And one represented a woman in your life, one a male in your life, and one was the church. And there were three people there kneeling, and you could go up and sort of telepathically relay your guilt and ask for forgiveness. You could also go up and talk to the priest and actually do confession. And I think they had a lay, another minister there. And I sat out there where you guys are, just really, really, okay, um, thanks, really, really um, being angry. So I finally went up at the very end before they took away the kneelers. And um, I, I just said, this is going to kill me. I've got to release of this guilt. And the boulders were lifted off my back. And I sat down a different person. So this is where the, the I came to believe came in, that there was a power there for me. I met a young woman at this retreat who called me two weeks later. And she said, um, you know, let's get together. And she then told me that she was going into this program. And so kicking and screaming one night when I had nothing to do, I went into the, I went to a meeting, and I heard, I'm powerless over this substance. 
and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I am a food addict. I am a food addict through and through and through. Um, and I just started right then and there. I uh, What keeps me on the program is a whole lot of things. Um, you know, my contact with my higher power one. The food plan is a wonderful thing. I actually go to OA How. We do have a specific food plan. It gives me boundaries. I know that if I'm hungry beyond my meal, my weight and measured meal, it's not about food. It's something else. And then I have to stop and think about that. Um, certain other times I've been tempted. Everything looks good out there. But I've really come to know that if I go beyond those limits, I will go back to eating the way I ate before. And I have no doubt in my mind I'm a food addict. Same with my life every single day. This is not something that's going to be cured. Um, but so when I went to that first meeting, I heard of powerless over food. I related that time powerless over um, this other guilt. So if I can turn this over to my higher power, then I'll be okay. And I was, and it was amazing. Um, it's real difficult sometimes. The longer I've been this way, the more people don't understand that I'm a food addict. The more they say, just this little bite won't hurt you. And I have to remember, just this little bite will hurt me. Um, the biggest time, the closest time I come to slipping is when somebody has done something special. You walk into their house and go, oh, I've made this special so-and-so. I'm so glad you're here. Um, and then I'm in the store and I'm like, do I be polite and save their feelings and eat the food? Or do I say, I'm really sorry, I just don't eat that. But don't worry because I always carry food in my car. I've got my own stuff. Don't go to any other extra trouble. I carry a, a pack of food in my car of stuff that I can run out and get if I need to. I travel with um, things like canned green beans, and I pack more of that stuff than I do of clothes. Because, and no, do I like canned green beans? Not particularly. But it's like, um, this is like a prescription for me. I take it because it works. I am an absolute believer in this program. It has saved my sanity. Um, I don't go off unprepared. Thank you. And um, my weighing and measuring my food gives me absolute boundaries. So I don't eyeball it. I just don't eyeball it. I put on a scale and measure it. Because if I'm hungry, you know, whatever my portion is, four ounces of something, can be this big. If I'm not, it's going to be this big. And this way, there's no argument. So that has helped me a whole lot. So I weigh and measure with a digital scale. I found out that I'm extremely compulsive. Guess what? And I like the one that, like, tells you grams so that I can't go over, you know, I weigh out one of my things in the morning. It's supposed to be 40 grams. 41 is not okay. And I guess I never realized I was compulsive. I never realized I was a perfectionist. But the wonderful thing about this program is I don't have to be perfect. And it's the only kind of food situation I've been in in my entire life where I didn't have to be absolutely perfect. I have to do it as well as I can do. And, um, and I do. And the one day at a time thing is absolutely immense. 
I had a friend that was absolutely horrified I was going out there. She said, well, you can't eat this and this and this for the rest of your life. It never occurred to me I was going to do it for the rest of my life. I'm a labor and delivery nurse. You do one contraction at a time, and that's all you do. So I think I was real lucky I got that from the very beginning. I'm making no promises about tomorrow. I'm making no promises about tonight. I certainly hope that I am abstinent tonight and tomorrow, but I'm not promising it to anyone. I'm just saying in the moment, if I want something, it looks good, I can say, you know what, I'm not going to have it right this minute. In 10 minutes, if I still want it, I'll think about it again. Usually, I, it's not around. I look at every single item on a menu, and I allow myself to make the choice. So far, it's not been worth the price. So, it's a wonderful thing. My higher power is, because I have thought trouble with my, my father who art in heaven, my higher power is my grandmother that you see in that in that book. It brings her to me every single day, many times in the day. It's made her, again, very, very real and alive in my life. And I feel like I'm that little girl looking up at her adoringly, sometimes sitting on her lap, sometimes sitting at her feet, but just adoring me. So it can be created if you have a problem with the higher power thing, and it's all saved my life. So thank you for letting me share. Thanks, Rebecca. That was great. Um, before we start our second speaker, I'm going to let you know we have a thing called the Ask It Basket. Uh, after our third speaker, we're going to have questions. So I'll pass it around. If you got a question for any speaker or the panel or anybody, just write it down, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll do some questions afterwards. So our second speaker is Martha. Thanks. Hi, everybody. My name's Martha, and I'm a compulsive eater. Can you hear okay? So I'm a little nervous, but I'm very glad to see your smiling faces and to, and to be in the room with you this morning. I realize that some of you are quite new, and um, it's really remarkable to me that you found out about the convention and that you found your way here, and uh, I just think that's fascinating. I guess thank God for the Internet. Uh, for for some of us. <clears throat> so I, too, will qualify and tell a little bit about my story, why I'm here. and uh, But, again, just congratulations for finding your way here and for coming into this room. I can remember when I was a newcomer, it's been a little over 19 years for me, uh, but I, I do remember details of my first two or three meetings. Um, I... I, too, consider that I was a compulsive eater in childhood. Um, I had a kind of strange relationship with food from, the, from as long, far back as I can remember. I can remember <clears throat> literally eating compulsively at about age four, if, and probably before that. But I remember if I saw something that I thought was food, it went in my mouth. And I can remember finding a bouillon cube in the refrigerator and thinking it was candy because it was wrapped up in gold foil, and boy, was I surprised. <laughs> um, but, that, but that was what it was like for me. If I saw it, it went in my mouth. If I, and if I began to think about it, I had to have it. I, I believed that I had to have it, and it felt as though I would die if I didn't. And I do believe that 
eating disorders, at least the form that it took in me, is an addiction. Uh, a definition that I've read of addiction is that the person, the addict, keeps doing the behavior despite negative consequences. And I did have negative consequences to my eating. Um, I began to get overweight at about age eight, but um, there were um, all kinds of other negative consequences besides just um, carrying extra weight on on my body. My top weight was only about 55 pounds more than I weigh now. I'm not a century person. There are you'll hear that term in meetings, and that means somebody who has at least 100 pounds um, of extra weight, or at least 100 pounds that they want to release. Um, I guess I'm sort of a half-century uh, person, but. Um, some of the other consequences, being an overweight child, I felt sort of isolated and different and um, awkward and self-conscious. I, probably every child feels that way, but uh, some of mine focused on my appearance. Uh, I also, as I got older and, and practiced the disease, as we say, um, um, I injured myself, not just physically with, you know, stretch marks and all that sort of thing and being unwilling to exercise because I was embarrassed, you know, not wanting to put on a bathing suit, not uh, wanting to be, you know, jog and be the last one in line or the, you know, the last person chosen for the team. Um, but I would, I would eat boiling food out of a, out of a pot. You know, I'd put a spoon in the, something that was cooking and put it right in my mouth. I could not not do that, and um, and that's what I consider to be the compulsion, this action of just, you know, hand to mouth and choking on food, and uh, I sometimes say when I tell my story, driving, driving and drinking is dangerous, driving and eating is dangerous too, and also that compulsion of driving from one place where there's food to another. Uh, I also have the obsession that goes along with this disease, which is the constant mental tape that plays. And for me, it was about weight. It was about food, like what am I going to eat next and where am I going to get it? Uh, what have I, I eaten already today? How many calories were in that? Can I, you know, how much more can I eat today? And as if thinking about it and adding up the numbers would keep me from doing it, but, but that went on constantly in my mind. And, um, and also an obsession about my appearance and my weight. I not only ate compulsively, I weighed compulsively and dieted compulsively. Um, so I think maybe that's enough of the sort of what it was like. Um, I got started and I couldn't stop. Um, I tried a lot, a lot, a lot of diets. I was put on my first diet by a doctor when I was 11. And I, I dieted almost every day of my life until I walked into the program at age 41. So I had 30 years of food obsession and uh, compulsive 
dieting and trying to control my behavior around food and trying to control my weight 30 solid years a day in and day out. Um, I consider myself a grazer. I was, I was not so much a binge eater, although I could binge, and I did often diet, and then once I went off, I would binge particularly on carbohydrates. But um, I consider myself a grazer. I sort of snacked all day long and into the night until I was asleep. Um, you know, went to bed lots of nights with food. Um, my life on the outside looked pretty good. You know, the first step is, uh, is about powerlessness and unmanageability. And, you know, this phrase, our lives had become unmanageable. Well, if, if somebody was looking at my life from the outside, you might think, oh, she's, you know, she's got a job, she's got a family, she lives in a nice place. It, it looked, and I, and I had a very good job, a somewhat prestigious job. So, uh, and sometimes I had a pretty normal looking body weight, but what was going on inside was something entirely different. And I think that's one of the things that's wonderful about this program is that if you stay long enough, you will hear people say things that sound very much like your story. And you'll realize that people go through things that you've gone through or something very similar or that they have thoughts and feelings similar to yours. It's a, it's a sense of not being alone. And when I came in, um, I realized that I wasn't alone in what went on in my mind and what went on with the bathroom scale and what went on with the refrigerator. Um, so I think I'll say, so I, like I said, I've been here 19 years. I've been maintaining a pretty normal body weight since that time. I've gone up and down some in OA. Um, the year my mother died, I uh, got, I wouldn't call it anorexic, but I got thinner than I am now. I, I don't quite know what was, was going on. I also was involved in a really sort of hot love affair and was exercising a lot and, you know, all, you know, all kinds of things were going on that year. Um, um, and my sponsor asked me about what I was eating and how much I weighed and advised me to get a scale because I hadn't had a scale for many years. I was sort of addicted to this scale and um, so I stopped weighing myself compulsively and just you know, periodically would weigh myself for her to check in. And so she asked me to get a scale and to weigh myself because she thought I was sort of getting on the other side of the disease, which was getting into the, uh, getting too thin in an unhealthy way. Um, so one of the things that I didn't say, but I guess I was sort of hinting at it, is that this is, this is my story, and each person that speaks will be speaking for themselves. We don't speak for OA as a whole, and I encourage you to listen to lots and lots of speakers and go to lots of meetings so that you do, if you don't already hear something that you resonate with, so that you will begin to, to feel at home and to 
and to find yourself in other people's stories and begin to tell your own story. Um, it's said that compulsive overeating is a, is a disease of isolation, and I believe that. Uh, I felt very isolated and alone, even though I did live with other people and I was around other people all the time. I felt alone and I felt um, as though I needed to sort of take care of myself by myself. Uh, you know, it was said earlier that it takes a village to raise a child. I really do believe that it takes a, takes a community to recover from compulsive eating. If we could do it differently by ourselves, we would have done done it. And I couldn't do it after all those years. I couldn't. I could accomplish a lot. I you know, went to school, got degrees, but I could not stop eating compulsively by myself. And the, the first step talks about powerlessness and that it's not that we're helpless. And, and I think be, by virtue of your being here today, you're not hopeless either. You came here because you believe that something could help and that you have some hope and you have a desire to take care of yourself. I'm, I'm making assumptions here, but, but that... You know, we cared enough about ourselves to get us here this morning. And um, so the hope is here. The hope begins in this second step, but the hope also sort of begins before we ever get here. And um, so I can't control my compulsive eating, and most of the time I don't try. But what I do have some say-so over is what I do with my time. And I can get a meeting schedule and know where the meetings are and go to a meeting. And if I don't want to go to a meeting, and there are plenty of times that I don't want to go to a meeting, I sometimes go anyway. And I'm always surprised. I, I don't In 19 years, I don't know that I've ever left a meeting more unhappy than I arrived. And I almost always feel less anxious almost as soon as I walk in the door. I think part of that is just being in the presence of other people. Um, that that um, it sort of calms me down. And the thing about compulsive eating is that it did sort of work for a while. That as a child I turned to food because it was something that I could could get sometimes on my own. I mean, there'd be food that I could reach, or I got tall enough to open the refrigerator or reach on, you know, into a cabinet. Um, Food will alter my mood, um, but it also had those destructive, uh, that destructive potential too. The, the problem was that the food didn't solve the problem. If, if I was unhappy 
I actually was more unhappy, especially after I got older and was really in the disease and compulsively eating. It didn't solve that. And if I was mad at somebody, it didn't help the relationship for me to eat to get back at them. Um, it really was insane. And the second step talks about insanity. So, so how kind of how I see insanity is using food to try to solve problems or using compulsive eating or compulsive dieting or obsession to try to solve problems. Um, it, didn't work, it doesn't work and it caused me harm and unhappiness. And um, another thing that I wanted to make sure to talk about, uh, thanks. And I, I guess I was sort of headed in that direction, is that this program is not about deprivation. I enjoy eating now. I enjoy eating far more than I enjoyed eating 30 years ago or 20 years ago when I was eating compulsively and felt guilty about it, felt bad about myself, felt bad about my body. Um, I really relish food. And it's wonderful that there are all these food metaphors in the language, you know. Uh, so I was... Uh, but I enjoy it and I'm present for it. I can taste it. it. I don't cram it down my throat so fast that I can't taste it. Um, I actually, I show up. And I, I figure if I can show up and be present for my food, I can show up and be present for other people in my life. I actually feel sort of clear-eyed and, uh, and awake and alive. I don't numb myself with food anymore the way I used to. Yes, do I sometimes eat compulsively? Do I eat fast sometimes and kind of go unconscious and wonder where, you know, where's, you know, oh, there's only about a quarter of this stuff left. I better wake up because this is all I'm getting for a few hours. My abstinence is basically three meals a day and, and nothing in between. Um, I also choose to abstain from things like caffeine and artificial sweeteners and stuff that alter my mood that um, uh, and, and re very refined sugar, very sugary foods. I, I choose to refrain from those and abstain from those one day at a time with the help of a higher power and this program. Um, but I can eat carrots compulsively. I can, you know, I can eat anything compulsive. I'm a compulsive eater. But my, the way I eat and how I feel about my body and how I feel about myself and how I relate to other people and how I see my position in the world is extraordinarily different from how it was when I came in here. Um, so what I was getting ready, you know, trying to get to say was that this is not about depriving myself or you're depriving yourself. What I get, and, and uh, it's already been alluded to before, what I get in return um, is, or what I get from being here and participating is something so much richer 
and more fulfilling and more satisfying. Again, they're sort of food metaphors that I didn't know exactly. I didn't know what I was going to get when I came here. I knew I wanted to lose weight. I knew that I had a problem. I knew I had a pretty much a lifelong thing about food, an abnormal relationship with food in my body and weight. But I didn't know that I was going to get a community. And I think that the community is part of what is healing. That, you know, we don't, it, it's like in the old days where people used to come together and, and build houses that everybody would sort of show up and, and participate. And uh, so, that, so that's how my recovery has worked, is involving other people in my life, telling people things that I, I didn't want to talk about. And, and I still don't talk about very, very personal things in a... Um, in an open meeting, I'll tell one person or a few people, but um, there's a lot of shame about compulsive eating, and I have boundaries now, and better boundaries about what's my food and what's your food, and about what what I want to tell and what I can comfortably tell uh, publicly. So what I will say in the last half minute is welcome. I am so glad you're here. Congratulations for having the courage to come. Uh, please talk to people, uh, get phone numbers, start going to meetings, find a home meeting, and it really can, there's a culture here, and you will feel like an outsider for a while, and it may feel cliquish, and the words may be confusing. But as much as you can do to bring yourself here, if, you know, if it's take a phone number and sit with it for weeks, just take it and ask for the willingness to be able to make a phone call or to come up to somebody if they don't come up to you. Know that we are imperfect. We're human beings. You might feel snubbed or disappointed or confused or angry or whatever. It's all part of it if you hate every one of us for years. It doesn't matter. Just keep coming back. I'm, I'm glad to hear you laugh. It's a place to laugh and cry and have your feelings and be accepted in a way you've never been before and learn to and come to accept yourself and learn things about yourself that you're going to be amazed. By. Uh, that's what the steps are about. It's uncovering uh, and recovering the, the parts of us that we lost in childhood, many of us, that sort of awe and open-eyed, uh, wondrous attitude about life that we came in with. So thank you. Good to see you. I hope I see you around the rest of the day. Thanks, Martha. That was great. Um, and our third and final speaker is Ray. And just a reminder, we still have the Ask It Basket going around, so uh, keep those questions coming. I'm Ray. I'm a compulsive overeater. I've been in a program three years, seven months, and three weeks. And this is my second convention. Um, part of willing to go to any links, I drove to um, Long Beach last year and enjoyed the convention and um, 
truck had 275,000 miles on it, and I didn't fix the radio, but um, I made it there. And um, qualified came into program 328 pounds. I've lost 143 pounds. I'm maintaining a 185 weight loss. These pants were size 54, and I grew out of them. You know, all my pants, I you know, below the crotch, I wore out, and these didn't because I had grown out of them. I was up to a 4X shirt with no end in sight. Probably stains on there. Been washed. And the pictures that, that I brought um, has um, this purple shirt in, in one of them. And it was given to me from um, my sister-in-law. And I don't think I'll wear purple or pink, but kind of the analogy of the shoe fits where it. Before I came into program, I was um, diagnosed with end-stage liver disease. Had no uh, ACL osteoarthritis and my knee, high blood pressure, um, diabetes, and diabetes, if you're obese, I was obese, will take 10 years off your life um, being obese too. And um, that's in remission and along with a lot of other ailments. What, what it used to be like was I drive to work to San Francisco lay down in the truck, well over um, 300 pounds, and sleep before I go into work, go into work and just wait for the break so I could lift my feet up on a chair. And and then after work, I'd go lay, lay down in the truck and i uh, sleep <laughs> again. And... When I when I get home from work, I'd sit in the car, get enough energy, walk my hands to the back of the car, I'd back in the driveway, push off, go lay down on the sofa, and my wife would wait on me, hand and foot, um, just eat dinner, ask for more, ask for sweets, have her go to the store and buy sweets, and. Then everybody would go to bed, and I'd look up there, and then I'd go and find whatever sugar um, I could and eat it going upstairs and taking it in the bedroom at night. And I know I was killing myself and figured that that there was no way out. I was hopeless, helpless, and you know I've never been suicidal, but it's you know form of suicide to um, eating myself to to death and um, and not being able to do anything about it you know it's I don't, there's a saying God won't give you more than you can handle um, you know I was at the end more than than I could handle how God bless you how um how I found OA was um, through my higher power. 
I had a higher power before I came into OA. And there's a saying in the, the big book, the spirit of the sunshine. And my, I was on disability with a bad depression, could barely lift my arms up out of bed, try and get up and barely lift my arms and just put them back down and lay down. And so my everyday routine um, at home was go down, get something to eat, breakfast, come back upstairs with the newspaper, open the the shades, and then read the newspaper and then go to sleep and then wake up later and go get something to eat and um, and maybe take a shower and my wife get home at 5 o'clock. Oh, I'm going to get up and do the dishes before she comes home. I'm going to wash a load of clothes. No, you know, I didn't. Didn't do that, just laying in bed um, depressed. There are pictures of my daughter in there, and she was a baby, and I weighed like um, 311 pounds when she was born and and was gain, gaining weight after she was um, born. My high weight was 350 pounds. And my wife would say, you know, lose weight, do it for your daughter. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it for her. She's um, nine years old. She's my little higher power. You know, Dad, you're starting to compulsive overeat, you know. And so I have a little, you know, reminder. And um, my, I've been counting my abstinence since the day I walked in these rooms. And... Right, right away overnight, you know, with, um, with edema in my legs, a lot of fluid. I weighed myself that night and the next morning. You know, I know it was water fluid, but it was five pounds louder, lighter than I was. And I said, wow, this, this, this was the day after I um, found OA. How, how I found it was I had seen a flyer at Kaiser and um, Overeaters Anonymous meeting probably Ten years before that, um, the seed was planted. You know, I used to go in there in the health section and all these classes that they're having, and I'd never sign up, but I grab all these papers, and I don't know what happened to that paper, but um, so I suffered for ten more years, and then um, so so when I came upstairs after breakfast. I opened the curtain and I opened the newspaper and and I seen what I had been looking for. Why well, I say that my um, higher power brought me to OA. I never knew anybody in OA. Nobody ever told me about it, but yet I knew I wanted to go there. And right in the front um, section, behind the front page, What's happening in the community today? Overeaters Anonymous, seven, seven o'clock Wednesday night, and I was ready. I was willing. My daughter was five years old at the time, and I left her inside the the house by herself and waited inside my truck in the driveway. And as soon as my wife pulled up, I said, "I ha- I have to go. I'm going to Overeaters Anonymous." 
um, just like other weight loss programs or even coming to the convention here, it's hard walking through the doors. But um, that spirit of the sunshine in, in the big book, my higher power put put the ad there, you know, when I needed it most. And I've been coming back ever since. Before, before OA, my higher power did for me what I couldn't do for myself um, with drinking, drugs, pot, and had a common law wife that I was together with um, 15 years. He had a son, and I moved into the spare bedroom and said, you, you know, do whatever you want. She, my stomach was being eaten too much because I found a drug a third time that, that was hers, and that was kind of like the third strike. So my higher power doing for me, I didn't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm going to stop. And then I had the decision, um, well, I can take care of my son because he was in high school. And I can uh, go to the bars, cry in my beer, or take care of my son. I opted to take care of my son and come to find out later I had end-stage liver disease, four-stage cirrhosis. And so I was able to stop on my own. You know, I tell myself I stopped that. Why can't I stop the food? So I feel it was my higher power um, on his time to bring me into program and work the steps to the best of my ability um, with rigorous honesty. And... It's brought me closer to my higher power. This program has saved my life because I, you know, know pretty much I'd be dead by now taking 21 pills a day. And hopefully in September I'm down to one or two. And just grateful to, to be here. Um, first, first day I, um, uh, came in to OA, I admitted I was a compulsive overeater, you know, before I call myself a food addict, foodaholic, and then I heard the word compulsive overeater. I, my wife now, we've been together 15 years, um, I would get on, get on her, why do you bring donuts home? You know, I'm a food addict. And, my daughter being five, there'd be two chocolate donuts, and I'd eat one of them, and then take a bite of the second. You know, just made my daughter cry. Um, eating, eating her food, and then get down to the donuts that I don't like and eat them anyway. It's not, it's not like that no more. Uh, I've stopped with the sugar. I'm not perfect on it. My abstinence isn't perfect. I'm not no star in the program, you know, even though I'm goal weight. Just live it one day at a time. And the steps, step one, I admitted the first meeting, and the step two came to believe a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And working with my sponsor made me 
a whole person. I admitted to God, to another human being, which is my sponsor, the um, exact nature of my wrongs. But step three, turning my will and my life over to the care of God. So all um, baggage that I carried around from drug, alcohol days. Um, how can I turn my will and my life over to God? So I admitted to God, you know, my sponsor. And, um, and step four made it made a moral inventory of ourselves. And so, so making that moral inventory, um, <clears throat> I have this list two years and three months, um, you know, my character defects. And then I closed it up. I'm a procrastinator and, um, and part of it is not doing the steps. You know, I just have fear doing it, but I know I need to, um, to do them. I'm on step eight now. So step five, I gave my inventory, um, to my sponsor. And, um, and she knew, she knew I was nervous and, and when, when I was done telling her the exact nature of my wrongs, see, I'm still here, I'm still, still here with you and, uh, nothing's the same, all confidential. And so, and my sponsor's on the East Coast right now and I call her and, you know, tell her my character defects. Step step six, getting ready to remove your defects at character. Step seven, humbly ask my higher power to remove my um, defects of character. And I was able to finish step seven at a retreat, moving into step six, seven deeply in Santa Cruz this year and you get your four step inventory step four, five, six and seven my sponsors say they go together and you know it was two years, three months and I opened it up and there were all my character defects staring me in the face um, you know not doing my homework in no way and um, so I was grateful to finish that step and Step eight, I haven't started working it. Um, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And part of the amends was um, my mom was obese when she died. You know, the food killed her. And I won't be able to, to make that amends, but it's okay. You know, before she died, before I was in program, she knew that I had a higher power. And I didn't get to see her the last days of um, that she was in the hospice hospital. And I'm okay with that because being 311 pounds, I got like the cold or the flu like three times. Get rid of it. Boom. Get it again. Have it for two more weeks and then catch it a third time. So. It was, you know, good to stay away. Um, my my dad, you know, I, I have to make amends to him, and and I have, 
I have, but I'm going to start help taking care of him. I have a hard time taking care of myself, my daughter, but um, just kind of do the best I can. So, so life now, thank you. Life now in a way is, um, I know I need to keep coming back. I know I need to keep working the steps. I need to admit whatever, whatever I eat, um, you know, because there's a saying, you're as sick as your secrets. And, um, you know, I was doing well with the food and I was taking gum up in the bed and chewing gum in bed and falling asleep with it in my mouth, even though I was successful losing weight. And finally, I admitted to my sponsor, oh, that's bad, that's bad. You know, you, you could choke to death um, on that. And, you know, the, the early 90s, I used to fall asleep with food in my in my mouth, and um, probably half in a program. I'm, you know, I'm a compulsive overeater. Time's running out, and I had a couple um, poems that I wrote that I'd like to share with my sponsor's permission. Uh, my sponsor said it's okay as long as I keep the anonymity that, you know, who my sponsor is. It's titled Sponsor. They open their heart to guide us to a fresh start. They lead us in the right direction, helping us to make the proper selection. They teach us to abstain, encouraging us to refrain. Their gratitude brings us hope, helping us to cope. They help us reflect our past, restoring us to sanity at last. As sanity begins to make us whole, work in the program renews our soul. Serenity comes as you come to believe, gifts of the program you will receive. Abstinence brings us relief when we practice this new belief. As we make this new discovery, it leads us to the road of recovery. God gave us the treasure to show His love by sending us a sponsor from above. My higher, my higher power and my sponsor are my ultimate team. Together we can fulfill my every dream. And the other um, poem that I wrote was um, The Road to Recovery. Uh, I had on there I, 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 and I changed it to our our higher power led us to this new discovery as we journey towards the road to recovery. Walking with our higher power by our side, he guides our every stride. Trusting our higher power, we will not fall. Together we are on this road for the long haul. Hope leads us to this course. Our higher power is our source. Turning our will and our lives over every day, our higher power will pave the way. God is with us on this spiritual path. Working the 12 steps is our spiritual path. The further down the road we go, the more it will make our abstinence grow. We may stumble, we may fall, our higher power will help us all. As this road takes us to places we never knew, our higher power gives us the strength and courage to follow through. This road gives us progress, not perfection, when we follow our higher power's direction. This road keeps us away from a downward funnel. It leads us back towards the light at the end of the tunnel. As our higher power transforms our attitude, we receive many gifts of gratitude. Thank you for having me speak here, and um, thank you for coming to the convention. Okay, um, so now we'll uh, get some questions from the Ask It basket. Um, Anybody willing to hand it up to me? If you have any questions, like if you have a piece of paper in your hand, feel free to just drop it in there. 
Okay, we got a few. Let's see what we got. Uh, speaker number one, have you ever found green beans in a convenient travel size? I'm assuming this is addressed to me since I brought up the green beans. Um, because I weigh and measure my food, I found that the, I think it's a 12-ounce can and it's got a flip-top lid. Um, it's about three-quarters of a can is the quantity of, that's one portion. So I take two cans, and if I have to discard the rest of the can, it's fine. But it's very workable, and I don't have to heat them. And... You know, I went to New York, and somebody said, you're taking green beans to New York? Well, it was Thanksgiving, and I didn't know if I could find a store. And all the vegetables there, he said, they've got lots and lots of vegetables. Yeah, they were all things I couldn't eat. They all had cream sauces and all that stuff. And he just took a look at what was offered and said, go get your beans. So <laughs> it saved my life. Tuna, too, flip top. Okay, I'm sure anyone who wants to answer this one can take this one. Should I weigh myself daily. Hi, my name's Martha. I'm still a compulsive eater. Hi, Martha. Um, I can only speak from my own experience that um, for me, it's not a good idea. I, there are some people who weigh themselves once a month at, on the same day of the month. Um, and um, as I said when I was telling my story, I, I went for very long periods of time because I was obsessive and compulsive about my weight. I think this, like many things in the program, is something you can work out with a sponsor. As somebody that you tell your story to, tell your history to, um, and that's often what people do in step one when they write about step one. They write about their, their food history, their, their history with compulsive eating and whatever other aspects of the disease um, you want to write about or, or that you're asked to write about, and then work that out with somebody who does know you a little bit and knows your story. Um, and it may change over time. It has certainly changed over time with me in the same way that my uh, plan of eating has changed over time. Uh, and I guess that's part of, sort of part of the point, is once we're here, we don't make decisions like that alone. It's good to check, check it out. It's also the kind of thing that sometimes people talk about in meetings. And sometimes when you hear yourself say something, then you learn something about yourself. So, um, and if anybody wants to talk about it more after the meeting, I'd be happy to talk more specifically about why you asked the question. Obviously, weight goes up and down uh, a pound or two or even three, depending on your size, um, just, you know, with the phases of the moon or whatever, that putting too much stock in a number on the scale kind of makes the scale the higher power, and that's not exactly the point. So, but again, I'd be happy to talk more to anybody after. All right. Another question. How do I get how do I get a sponsor? Everyone in my group seems too busy. I'm Rebecca, I'm a food addict. My suggestion is you just ask. You know, I think that's in our heads. 
that everyone is too busy. Um, I'm certainly too busy, but ask me. And if I can't do it forever and ever, I can do it until you find somebody. Um, on my mother's, the day of my mother's memorial, um, I was asked the week before if I would be speaker at a meeting. And my immediate response was, she knows I've got my mother's memorial. How can I do that? And then I thought, maybe that's exactly what I need to be doing on this morning that's so sad for me. And I was, I was grateful for the service, and I was grateful that she didn't think she's going to memorial service for her mother. It's too much for her to do. I'm going to save her from that. She gave me a gift. So ask people. And um, even if they have said they're not available, often they'll actually do it because they know that that guidance is what we need. So just ask. Okay, our last question. Oh, okay, we got one more, one more person with a comment on. Um, as far as looking for a sponsor, um, look for someone kind of like a saying in, in a way um, that has what you want, and, you know, how, how they're working their program. You know, you can see the light, you know, shine through them. And, um, and if you can't find a, a sponsor in your meeting, um, go to other meetings. And that, that's what I do. Um, Napa, Vallejo, Concord, San Francisco, Sacramento. And you'll find one. Your higher power will give you one, you know, if you're – keep looking. Thanks. And if the sponsor doesn't work, get another sponsor. Um, I've been asked to sponsor, and I'm not um, – that's all I do. I get asked. You know, I don't, I don't do my homework and, you know, ask them questions and stuff. And I'm willing to help anybody in program. But um, I just have a problem sponsoring things. Okay, and our last question. I don't know how to stay a day out of food. Anyone want to comment? I'm a food addict. Um, I think it was sort of the same thing I said when um, I said, if I just talk about this very second and just tell myself that for this very second, I won't have it. I don't look at it a day at a time. I look at it this very second. And, and again, I give myself permission in 10 minutes to relook at that. I don't say you will have it in 10 minutes. I say you can make a decision in 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes, I'm down to this very second. And the one moment at a time is one of the things that makes this program work. Because we don't have to commit. We don't have to commit to all day long. We don't have to commit for next tomorrow or the rest of my life. Just this minute. And I have to balance out the price. But I also have to give myself the choice, or to me it becomes a program of deprivation. And so, so far it's not been worth the price. And um, I think the one, one moment at a time is the thing that works the very best for that. So I hope that helps. We're compulsive overeaters. We have a disease. You know, the food obsession's there. 
Um, what works for me is um, finding outlets, and you know whether it's the gym, telephone call um, to another person and program. That's my greatest compliment when I get an OA phone call. And I know I know that the food obsession will will always be there. So also what works for me um, if I, I really don't have a food plan, but I you know abstain from foods that that call me. Can't think of anything else to eat. Oh, I think of that one. Oh, you know, I have a problem with that one. And keep them out of the house. Um, dump them. And I thank you. I'm Rebecca. I'm still a food addict. Um, I think the other thing that helps me a lot and it keeps me from beating myself up for really doing the harm to my body that I've done for so long is to realize that that was not a bad thing. It was a survival technique. And whatever I needed to survive, the eating helped me. But in the program, I have other tools to use. So I can turn to those other tools. But it's really, really helpful to me not to hate myself because I'm a compulsive overeater. And I know that if I take that bite, I'm going to go back to hating myself. It is what I will do. And that was such a horrible, horrible feeling. So I don't, it's been amazing. The, the promises do work. If you stay in the program, I don't run to the cupboards the minute the door shuts. I don't go to the refrigerator, which is what I did before. The door would shut. I'd have privacy. I was hunting through that refrigerator in those cupboards. And... Of course, I never found the thing that did the thing, the trick. So I had to keep eating. And I also realized that the food does help me. It helps me about oh, a tenth of a second as it goes down my gullet. It feels really satisfying. But then I've got to keep that satisfaction up by putting more down my gullet. And then I hate myself. So if you can get through the moment um, and realize that it was a survival skill, but we've got tools now to replace that survival skill. I don't need that one anymore. So a lot of self-talk. Hi. I'm going to repeat one thing that I said. That This is a great question to ask a lot of people to get to say, what do you do? What do you do when you're in the obsession um, and... Um, I love hearing it. My answer changes all the time. And uh, it's, a, again, a good way to, to begin to meet people and to understand what other people do. One thing, one of the steps that really helps with this is meditation. And when I came in here, I could not sit still. I was overweight, and I moved very slowly, and I didn't like to exercise. But I could not sit still. I was racing inside. My mind was racing. And I was very anxious. So my, you know, my heart was racing. My body was racing, even though I looked pretty uh, inert. And um, I couldn't meditate. I, I one time went to a meditation retreat center, and I literally thought I was going to jump out of my skin or 
scream bloody murder or have to run, you know, and like burst out the door. I couldn't stand it. Um, I was that miserable in my own skin. But slowly over time, um, I have... I have a little meditation practice. The 11th step is sought through prayer and meditation. Um, help me here. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God or whatever. Uh, I'm, only, I'm a little nervous right this minute. Uh, but um, so that's one of the steps that is sort of, immediately is applicable to the eating because it um, because there's a little space in between the thought to eat or the impulse to eat and the actual act of doing it. And if I can do anything that puts something between me and the compulsion, um, then I'm I'm better I'm better off, and um, by by slowing down, which I think just happened. It did. It's not that the meditation made it possible for me to stop eating compulsively. Coming and being in the meeting and being with other people slowed me down enough that I could actually begin to meditate and could actually begin to see my behavior and realize what was going on in my mind and realizing what I was doing at the dinner table or at the, at the cupboard. So um, I recommend the steps and I recommend that um, you find something like what, what people were, what Ray was saying about find something to do instead no matter what and that what the tools are there for too, writing, and the telephone and the literature, that's what to do instead of eating. So hopefully uh, some of that made sense and um, uh, good luck. Thank you. Okay, um, it is now time to close the session. Let's thank our speakers, everyone who shared, and well, we didn't have time for sharing, I apologize, and um, everyone who has done service for this, this, yeah, this session. Please stand your hands as we close the meeting with the OA promise. I put my hand in yours.